Well, good afternoon, good morning, and it's good to see you all here today. Thank you so much for coming. And we are going to look at this important question, why should I trust the Bible? I don't know if you've been uh, reading the, following the news in this uh, past week. You might have read uh, this story about Elizabeth Holmes. And um, this is a, a copy from The Guardian um, online newspaper. On Friday... Elizabeth Holmes, the founder of a tech company called Theranos, was sentenced to more than 11 years in prison for fraud. And it closed the chapter of, in one of the biggest, or closed the final chapter in one of the biggest uh, scandals in Silicon Valley's history. In 2014, Elizabeth Holmes had founded, or, or the company that she'd founded in 2003, when she was only 19, was valued at $9 billion, as in 2014. And in 2015, Forbes magazine crowned Miss Holmes aged only 31 as the world's, world's youngest self-made female billionaire and she had a net worth of four and a half billion dollars she was called the female Steve Jobs and she even dressed like him with a black turtleneck top inspired by her own fear of needles Miss Holmes wanted to design a device that could screen for diseases from diabetes to cancer with just one drop of blood. And so she created this device that she called the Edison, the size of a, a microwave. And she started setting up many labs in supermarkets across the U.S., supermarkets like Safeway and all these places. She told investors that she'd struck a deal with the US Army and she raised half a billion dollars from investors for her company. Investors like Rupert Murdoch and Henry Kissinger all invested thousands of dollars into Theranos, her company. But things started to crumble in 2015. The Journal of the American Medical Association criticised her for failing to publish her research in peer-reviewed journals. There were reports that her employees didn't want to use her device because they doubted the accuracy of the tests and the accuracy of the diagnosis that it was given. 
Ms. Holmes faked documents that she was sending to investors by adding logos from big companies like Pfizer and GlaxoSmithKline to her documents in a bid to suggest that her technology um, had been vetted by these big pharmaceutical companies. Supermarkets started to pull out, they got cold feet. Eventually, in September 2018, Theranos filed for bankruptcy. And in January this year, Ms. Holmes, the founder and the CEO of Theranos, was found guilty of four counts of fraud and conspiracy. And just this last Friday, this woman who only seven years ago was crowned by Forbes magazine as the world's, world's youngest self-made female billionaire, she was sentenced to prison for 11 years. More than 11 years. Now, why do I tell you this story? It's because it is about trust. Miss Holmes's <coughs> approach was fake it till you make it. But her approach didn't stand the test of time. And it didn't stand the scrutiny of investigators. Eventually she was found out. What about the Bible? Has the Bible stood the test of time? And how does it stand when under intense scrutiny by, investigation, by investigators and critics? Well, that's the question we're going to look at today. And in short, we're going to ask the question, can we trust the Bible. Now, this this is a this is a huge subject, and uh, as I think Paul said last week as well, um, we're only going to scratch the surface. But we're going to think tonight or today rather about three reasons, and you know <laughs> there are lots of reasons. Three reasons or three areas of evidence of why I can trust the Bible, why you can trust the Bible. The first reason I'm going to give you today is the harmony of the Bible or the unity of the Bible. Now, it's, it's worth bearing, just pointing out that when we speak about the Bible, it's not just one book written or even, you know, a book compiled by one person. As we, as we know and as we gather when we're trying to sing, there are lots of books in the Bible. And I'm glad that Stephen put on the screen there when it came to the Minor Prophets as we were trying to sing because I, I, I always struggle um, 
There are 66 books in the Bible, and we sang 39 of them in the Old Testament. There are 27 in the New Testament. 66 books. The Bible was written, you know, Genesis to Revelation, was written over a period of 1600 years by more than 40 authors. The, these authors, these writers, they came from all sorts of backgrounds. Kings, doctors, shepherds, fishermen, tent makers. The Bible was originally written in, in, two, in three languages. Hebrew and Greek, mainly. Hebrew, the Old Testament, Greek, the New Testament. Parts of the Old Testament is also in Aramaic. The Bible was written on three continents. Africa, Asia, and Europe. Yet, in spite of this great variety, the amazing thing about the Bible is the essential unity the perfect harmony that there is within the Bible although the writers deal with the most important questions that have ever occupied people's minds and write on a great number of controversial subjects they do so with harmony and continuity to such an extent that it makes the Bible unique in the world of literature and this is a remarkable piece of evidence you know the Bible is not a straightforward document which is serialized by succeeding generations where you know one consciously takes over from the next it includes all kinds of genres, public records, history, prophecy, sermons, hymns, poetry, letters. The writers, they lived in vastly different times and in different places and only a handful of them ever met each other. They would have had different temperaments and different personalities. No doubt they would have disagreed on many things. Yet without collaboration, they have given us a body of writing that is amazingly coherent. I used to work for an oil company that was listed on the London Stock Exchange and twice a year we had to publish trading updates to the stock market and the document contained operational and financial information for the last 6 or, or 12 months and we had lots of contributors to this document, there was the CEO there was the chairman there was the chief operating officer and the chief financial officer and I was responsible for producing the, the financial information and, and I also held the pen, so to speak. I, I um, was in charge of the document, so to speak. 
And so I had to make sure that the whole document was pieced together and that it was all cross-referenced and all synchronized and it wasn't an easy task. The CEO would write from a very different perspective than the chairman. The CEO was a kind of a, a gushing kind of uh, style and perhaps wanted to over-egg the pudding. And the chairman was more restrained and wanting to, wanted to hold him back. And then the CEO would write about the, the operational side and the CFO about the financial side. And, and then auditors and stockbrokers and PR people, they all poured over it and had their tuppence worth of, of input. So I had to pull all this together and, um, and get the CEO sign off and then send it off to be released to the public, to investors and, 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 and so on. You know, it was, it was hard work for a month. After that point when it was released, I never ever wanted to read that document ever again. Partly because I was so sick and tired of it. And partly because I knew I would find mistakes in it. There would be some cross something that wouldn't cross-reference. Something that wouldn't completely reconcile. Despite the fact that I had poured over it, and the auditors had done, and the PR people, and all these people... And that's just a document, 50 to 100 pages, compiled over a month. Four or five contributors, looking back for 6 to 12 months. So when we think about the Bible, the period covers, and all the different contributors, it is amazing to think that it is so amazingly coherent. And it is really super, supernatural. And the Bible says this. All scripture is breathed out by God. In the author's version you may be familiar with the phrase. All scripture is given by inspiration. It wasn't so much that people were inspired by something. But God breathed out his word. Through those who wrote it. Which it is why it is so coherent and is such a united book when we, when we think about har, when we think about harmony I suppose we think about an orchestra and it's amazing to listen to an orchestra symphony orchestra live and you know all the different instruments they sound different they play different notes but they harmonize beautifully following the conductor I suppose it's a feeble picture but it's a bit of a picture isn't it of how every individual book is like in the Bible is like an, an instrument in an orchestra beautifully harmonizing with and sounding different but yet harmonizing with the others following the conductor so the harmony of the bible and a great man called J.I. Packer died very recently he said this the bible has an organic coherence that is simply stunning 
Books written centuries apart seem to have been designed for the express purpose of supplementing and illuminating each other. Truly the inner unity of the Bible is miraculous, a sign and wonder challenging the unbelief of our sceptical age. The other thing that really unites the scripture and all the books in the Bible is that they point to Christ. They point to Christ. You know, Jesus said this to to those who knew the Old Testament well, but they weren't really believing in him, in the Lord Jesus. And he says, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me, the Lord Jesus says. And so... All the 66 books in the Bible, they unite and they harmonize and they point to Christ because they've been breathed out by God. Now, let's move on. We've thought about the harmony of the Bible or the unity of the Bible. Let's think next about the veracity of the manuscripts, the veracity of the manuscripts and now by by veracity I guess that's maybe not a word we use a lot but by veracity I mean the integrity the authenticity and the precision of the manuscripts that's what I mean by veracity by manuscripts I mean the handwritten copies of the original document the original books of the Bible were written on perishable material and until the printing press was invented in the 15th century all we had were manuscripts copied by hand again and again over hundreds of years the writing material for these manuscripts was either papyrus made from durable reed growing in the Nile Valley and glued together a bit like plywood today or parchments made by the skin of sheep or goat now how do we know that the, the copies that these manuscripts are anything like the original the autograph that Paul, the letters, that the, the actual letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians or to the Romans. The actual gospel that Luke wrote on papyrus. How do we know that the manuscripts, the copies we have of that is actually reflecting what was originally written? And, and to answer that question we have to ask three sub-questions. And they are the as follows, how many manuscripts do we have? How many manuscripts do we have? How close in time are the manuscripts we have to the original text? And thirdly, how can we be sure that the manuscripts were copied um, accurately? In other words, are there variations between these manuscripts? And the fewer manuscripts we have, the weaker the evidence. 
the longer the period of time between the date of the manuscript to the original text the less reliable they are and the more variations that there are between manuscripts the more likely it is that errors have crept in so let's have a think about these three questions how many manuscripts do we have now my favorite piece of software is Microsoft Excel I love Microsoft Excel and I spend most of my day in Microsoft Excel sadly I can't use Excel very often when I'm preaching so I was delighted to be able to use Microsoft Excel for my message and this is a graph that I prepared <laughs> on Microsoft Excel I didn't collate the data I just put it in now the text is rather small so you may not see this but I'm, I'm sure you'll get the gist of this on the left hand side that's the New Testament manuscripts in Greek if you've got a very good eyesight and that's the New Testament manuscripts we have in all languages there are more than 5,000 Greek manuscripts more than 5,000 handwritten manuscripts found and available today 5,856 to be precise when you look at and these are just New Testament um, manuscripts you can look at manuscripts in different languages translated so it's like the Septuagint or that's the Old Testament but other languages uh, that the the original has been translated and there's over 20,000 now is that significant or is it average well it is hugely significant and I have listed a number of other uh, documents along there historical documents and the only one that comes anywhere close is Homer's Iliad I'm not sure if some of you looked at that at school. I don't think they do that these days. I certainly didn't do it. Uh, 1900 um, available. So we can see that there's an embarrassing riches of manuscripts of the New Testament. But how about the period of time between when they were first written and the dates of the manuscripts <coughs> again the numbers for the New Testament manuscripts is way above all other documents let me show you another graph again a small but on the left hand side now the lower the graph the smaller graph the better because that's a short period of time okay so we've got the New Testament again here Greek and we've got the other languages in the orange is years between the date that it was written and the earliest fragments now a fragment is a piece of a complete manuscript okay so as you can imagine being written on papyrus and and uh, parchments thousands of years ago um, for many only fragments are available 25 years between the date of the earliest fragment of a New Testament to when it was originally written. 
225 years between a full manuscript um, and the earliest date. And again, the Bible compares favorably, to put it, you know, to not exaggerate things or to put it modestly, extremely favorably to others compared to the annals of Tacitus for example where the period between the earliest fragment was 700 years now Tacitus tells us that Julius Caesar invaded Britain in 55 BC no one doubts Tacitus no one doubts that Julius Caesar invaded Britain in 55 BC but that was written by Tacitus who only I think Tacitus where is he 36 manuscripts available by Tacitus's original writings and 700 years between the earliest manuscript and from when it originally was written no one questions that Emperor Hadrian built a wall to separate the Romans from the barbarians not my words uh, in year 122 AD yet the manuscripts supporting these historical events are far inferior to the Bible's manuscripts. A man called Sir Frederick G. Kenyon, he was the former director and principal librarian of the British Museum, he said this, The interval then between the dates of the original composition and the earliest extant evidence becomes so small as to be in fact negligible and the last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us substantially as they were written has now been removed both the authenticity and the general integrity of the books of the New Testament may be regarded as finally established that's the words of Sir Frederick G. Kenyon but what about the third test what about textual variants? Now this picture is, you can maybe ma imagine, these are children playing Chinese whispers. And you know what that is like. And some people imagine that the copying of the Bible over hundreds and hundreds of years is just like Chinese whispers. And what we have is just so far from what was said originally. So how do we, how do the manuscripts compare? And are there many variants? Now before we look at that, it's worth bearing in mind that even after the printing press was invented, mistakes weren't eliminated. There's a version of the Bible that was printed in 1631, it's called the Wicked Bible, because it missed out the word not from commandment number seven. The Wicked Bible says, Thou shalt commit adultery. My father-in-law, he has a, a Bible, an English Bible, 
And it says modern instead of modest in 1 Timothy 2.9. I've actually seen it with my own eyes. So he says that women should address them, adorn themselves in modern apparel <laughs> as opposed to modest apparel. <coughs> now that's mistakes in, since the printing press came. When it comes to the manuscripts, the textual variants as they call it, strongly support the truthfulness of scripture. Of all the variants, and there are not many, only 1% are classed as meaningful and viable. But even those don't have an overall impact on the narrative and on the meaning of the Bible. These variants are examples like John 8, where some manuscripts contain the story of the woman who was caught in adultery, and others don't. Some uh, manuscripts contain some extra verses in Mark chapter 16, some don't. Now whether you include them or exclude them, it has no bearing on the overall narrative of the overall teaching of scripture. And in fact, no one is trying to hide it either. If you have any Bible, it will have it in your footnote and it will say, these verses do not appear in all manuscripts. So the degree of consistency between the Bible manuscripts is, is hugely significant. And we can illustrate it like this. Suppose five children were asked to copy a sentence on a blackboard. Don't use blackboards anymore, smartboard or whatever. Um, and only two produced identical copies. Now, if we didn't know the original sentence we might not be sure whether the two were right or whether the two made the same mistake by coincidence. It's a small sample. Two out of five, we can't be sure. But if 500 copied the sentence and 200 were identical we could be fairly certain that they, they represented the original exactly. And that really is what the manuscripts of the Bible do. There are so many of them, as we thought. There's thousands of manuscripts. The variance between them are so small that we can say and quote Sir Frederick Kenyon again, the Christian can take the whole Bible in his hand and say without fear or hesitation that he holds in it the true word of God handed down without essential loss from generation to generation throughout centuries and we've, we've only scratched the surface we haven't even spoken about the Dead Sea Scrolls which are very impressive and were discovered in 1947. We haven't got time to look at that. Um, so I hope you see that the, the veracity of the manuscripts of the Bible are, are so powerful. It's an overwhelming confirmation of the truthfulness of Scripture. 
But let's move on. So the Bible has an inherent unity and the manuscripts are authentic but is what the Bible says accurate? I'm just going to give you two examples and uh, many examples could be quoted but I'm just going to give you two for the sake of time. The first example is the Hittites. What about the Hittites? That was a question that was raised and caused a lot of embarrassment to Christians and Jews in the 18th and 19th century. You know, the Hittites were a superpower in the Old Testament. And the Bible speaks a lot about the Hittites. But despite the high profile of the Hittites in the Old Testament, there was no known reference to such people anywhere else. And the argument of the Bible critics went like this, the Hittites are never mentioned by classical historians. There is no evidence of them in archaeology. Therefore, there were no Hittites. The Bible must be untrue. That's the evidence. And sadly, many Bible critics thought that and they died. But, in 1876, explorations uncovered starting really and started to uncover masses of evidence confirming the Bible's record of the Hittites in great detail. There is now an entire museum in Ankara in Turkey which is devoted to Hittite relics. The Encyclopedia Britannica, the edition from 1860, devoted only eight lines to the Hittites. In the 1947 edition, it was obliged to devote 10 pages to Hittite history, culture and religion. You can't see that, doesn't matter. This is a Hittite monument that you can see in Ankara, if you so desire. Now that proves a point that the Bible is true. It also illustrates the point that you may not be able to answer a question that somebody levies against the scriptures now. A, critic, a criticism against scripture. You can say, I don't know the answer to that. But I believe the answer will be known at one point. You know, Christians in the 18th century can say, I'm not sure how that could be. We can look back and we can see archaeology and history backs up the claims of the Bible. Now, finally, final example of the accuracy of the Bible. Now, much of the Bible is historical records. Not all of it. We've got poetry and so on. But a lot of it is historical records. And people like Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, they wrote historical, or they claimed to write historical events. Events that took place in Judea in the first century. And they wrote detailed accounts. And they wrote them from different places. From Italy, Greece and Turkey. Mark, Luke and John wrote their accounts. Now imagine you were tasked. I tasked you to write a detailed account of events that took place in Wales. Uh, some time ago. And you had no access to the internet. Okay, So you're writing a but a detailed account that has to stand up to scrutiny and investigation about events that took place in Wales. Let me see. 
and you can't have access to uh, the internet so how, how do I know where, where do I start you know um, it would be extremely impossible extremely difficult if not impossible to get all the incidental details correct details such as names you know, I know what popular names are here I mean um, Wales I know the topography around here I know there's a, there's a river D there's a river Don there's Benahi I know Loch Skeen I know the topography around here but I don't know the topography in Wales research shows that the percentages of names appearing in the Gospels and the Book of Acts are very similar to those found across all the data sources for that period outside the New Testament for first century Judea now that's very significant names used by Jewish, uh, Jewish uh, groups in Rome were very different from what Jews called their children in Judea or Jewish groups in Egypt for example but there's a very strong correlation between the names used in the New Testament to those that appear in official records. Let me give you an example. The most popular Jewish name, male name, in first century Judea is Simon. We have eight different persons called Simon in the New Testament. Now, what do we do when there are lots of people called the same name? Well, we call them, we add a, what we call a disambiguator. We add a, a qualifier. You know, in Shetland there's Muckle John and Piri John. Big John and Little John. Um, that's exactly what the New Testament does. It speaks about Simon the Zealot, Simon Peter, Simon the Cyrenian, and Simon the Leper, for example. These incidental, this incidental knowledge of names and the popularity of names is not something that somebody could have made up. Someone living far away from Judea would not have been able to get this right. And the same applies for geographical information. Detailed geographical nuance is correctly recorded in the New Testament, in the Gospel records. Things like travelling times between places, the respective heights of places. They went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. The relationship between bodies of water and villages and towns. All these detailed geographical nuance is correctly stated and this leads us to the conclusion that they were writing their accounts based on eyewitness records eyewitness testimonies exactly as they claimed we can be sure that what they recorded therefore about the life of Jesus is indeed eyewitness accounts of what actually took place now I'm sorry to have gone on for so long we've only just looked at three areas we haven't looked at evidence such as fulfilled prophecy we haven't looked at other evidence such as external references 
corroborating the claims of the Bible from Josephus and Tacitus and all these places but I hope you've, you've got a flavour that this book the Bible is trustworthy and that's important because this is what the Bible says and I'll just finish with this verse Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Our faith comes from this book. Is that if this book is can be discredited, our faith is invalidated. But I challenge you today to put your trust in this book. It's not blind faith. This is a solid foundation for your faith. This book which speaks about Christ and tells us that we can have salvation through him and we can have a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I call you to put your faith in the scriptures which speak of Christ thank you for listening sorry for going over my time let's pray Father we thank you for your by, for your word we thank you that we could sing how firm a foundation you saints of the Lord are found in your excellent word and Father we thank you for the firm foundation that we have in your word we thank you it's trustworthy And we thank you that your word speaks about Christ and is focused on him and we thank you for him today. We thank you for his death. We thank you for his resurrection. We thank you for the eyewitness accounts of him. We thank you that we can be certain they are true. We thank you that we can put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus and know that we are saved. Pray that you bless us today we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.